Welcome back to Keep Them Wild, the wildlife news podcast. If you're new, welcome. We're super happy to have you here. We are a bi-weekly news podcast, and at the moment, we're doing themed episodes to recap some of what's been going on over the past year of wildlife conservation news. I'm Larea. And I'm Solon. And this week, we're going to be focusing on wildlife legislation updates in the United States. And we'll kick off with a few shorter updates from Nebraska, Kansas, and Florida, and then get into two different wildlife bills, one about wolves and another one about mountain lion hunting. So for our first story, the USDA announced a $500 million investment that will be going to the model called Working Lands for Wildlife. This will be assisting in two Nebraska efforts established to assist grassland and wildlife conservation for farmers, ranchers, and indigenous communities. The goal of this plan is to balance the need for communities and landowners with the needs of endangered species. The funds of Working Lands for Wildlife was previously only available through the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service, but now the funds will be accessible for landowners who are interested in conservation. This conservation effort is aimed at helping bobwhite quail, greater prairie chicken, and the American burying beetle. Historically, the grasslands have been negatively affected by development, agriculture, and overgrazing, as well as invasive species such as the eastern red cedar and cheatgrass. So this article did not explicitly state the management strategies are planning outside of previous red cedar removal and prescribed burning, but I would speculate that they will continue with the prescribed burning on private and indigenous lands, along with the removal of invasive species such as red cedar and cheatgrass, and also they'll help support sustainable grazing and hunting. So prior to aiding landowners, the Working Lands for Wildlife Initiative has benefited 90,130 acres of land through the removal of the eastern red cedar and prescribed burning. So we can expect these efforts to continue on private lands as well. A variety of the partners that are working together with the landowners on the Nebraska initiatives include the Pheasants Forever, the Natural Resource Conservation Services, the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, the Sand Hills Task Force, the Nature Conservancy, the Rainwater Basin Joint Venture, Nebraska Cattlemen, Nebraska Environmental Trust, and the National Fish and Wildlife Federation. So to learn whether your land is eligible for working lands for wildlife efforts or other conservation programs, visit the OutdoorNebraska.gov website and search for land management. So I think that this is a great effort to start land conservation in parts of the United States that have primarily privately owned land, which is the majority of the Plains area. Overall, it's a pretty new plan, but I would like to see them have some more information on how private landowners can become a part of this, because I think that there's going to be a lot of people that are interested in conservation land. Yeah, I think initiatives like this are really great especially in states like Nebraska and Texas. And I'm going to be talking about Kansas, which is also one of those states whose land is primarily privately owned. And we're starting to see this be a larger trend throughout conservation to try to get landowners bought into conservation and make it so that conservation is not automatically a battle against landowners. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that like a lot of conservation land often is still multi-use. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's completely off limits or anything, or it doesn't even necessarily mean it'd be off limits for the cattle grazers of Nebraska 
good, but I think it leads to a better sustainable management approach. And we don't exactly know how they're going to go about having landowners partake in conservation, but I would guess there's going to be a large financial incentive for them, as well as, you know, the idea of improving the lands that they own around them as well, um, because it might be kind of hard for them to sustainably manage their lands just strictly through cattle grazing and uh, particularly low staff to deal with invasives that a lot of cattle ranches see. So I think that this will help provide funding for them to help manage their lands as well. I'm going to jump right into another story out of the Midwest. So Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is exploring issues surrounding baiting wildlife. And Kansas Wildlife and Parks Commissioners hosted a general public panel discussion on June 22nd of 2023, where subject matter experts from Kansas, North Dakota, and Oklahoma shared insights into the history of baiting in the Midwest and issues that come along with it, like the increased risks of disease transmission, nutrition and toxins associated with baiting and supplemental feeding, and animal behavior, among some other concerns. The department defines baiting wildlife as the act of intentionally placing food or nutrient substances to manipulate the behavior of wildlife species. This is not to be confused with agricultural food plots or backyard bird feeders. The Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, KDWP, will host several town hall-style public meetings in the coming months to solicit broader input on these complex issues. So at this point, KDWP is just trying to figure out what public opinion around baiting is, because eventually they are going to want to put forward some type of regulation recommendations. As it stands, in Kansas, it's illegal to bait wildlife on public lands and lands enrolled in the Walk and Hunting Access Program. But baiting is allowed on private lands in Kansas. And kind of like what we talked about in Nebraska, 98% of the lands in Kansas are private lands. So this is significant. Even though baiting is not allowed on public lands, it doesn't really apply to the majority of the land in Kansas. So although there's no official regulation recommendations as of yet, I can see some of the major reasons that Kansas wants to address issues like baiting is to stop the spread of diseases like chronic wasting disease. This is a disease that's hitting cervids, which are deer and elk across the country. And as of June 30th, 2022, chronic wasting disease has been detected in 738 cervids, including two captive elk, one captive mule deer, and 735 wild free ranging deer. Some other diseases Kansas may be trying to control include bovine tuberculosis and foot and mouth disease, which are both serious diseases. So anyway, this is a short and sweet bit of information coming out of Kansas. I think it demonstrates something interesting that's kind of happening all over the country, which is paying a bit closer attention to the spread of disease, especially diseases like chronic wasting disease. And it just seems that more and more these these diseases that affect wildlife are more and more of concern because we want to not only prevent the spread of them in wild populations, but also prevent the spread into domestic populations and even zoonotic disease spread that may affect humans as well. So on that note, I'm going to give you all another story that I think is pretty positive coming out of Florida. Um, We are doing so good this week. I feel like last week we just bummed everybody out about what's going on. And so far we have three positive news stories in a row. That's right. But we're going to end with some less positive ones. Don't worry. Oh, no. 
So the National Wildlife Refuge System of Florida is likely to become much larger in the near future with approximately 850 million acres of the southwestern part of Florida becoming a state conservation land. The conservation land will likely be integrated in between other properties as many homes and businesses are still expanding in this part of the state. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service intends to identify regions with high quality habitat and include these regions in conservation. This will help protect migratory birds, along with other 74 threatened and endangered species in the region. Designating this area for protection offers an exceptional opportunity to conserve and restore critical resources at the landscape level, providing a holistic long-term solution to maintaining the health of the region's waters and wildlife. This will help increase wildlife corridors. While this was not stated in the article that I was reading about this, I believe this will probably help the range of the Florida panther, puma, conchalor, cougar, as this is the part of the state that they're mostly found in. So hopefully we'll see this lead to a range expansion of the Florida panther. So this is still super early on. They have to figure out essentially where the funding is going to come from still, which is a huge part of it, and how much the state and feds are going to contribute to this, and then also how the landowners are going to be compensated. So they still have a lot to figure out, but overall, it's at least they're thinking about it, especially because Florida is still rapidly developing in many parts, especially in the western part of the state. So I think that this is a great bill, and I hope it incentivizes people to take care of the land. Well, I have one more piece of, hmm, I guess, depends on how you view it. It could be good news or it could be potentially complicated news. But uh, I have one more piece of news before we get into the, the, the just bad news. So in March 2023, the BLM, so the Bureau of Land Management, announced a proposed new rule called the Public Lands Rule. And I'm actually just going to read you what the BLM posted on their website about this rule because they summed it up pretty well. So the proposed public lands rule would establish a framework to ensure healthy landscapes, abundant wildlife habitat, clean water, and balanced decision-making on our nation's public lands. The proposal would uphold the Bureau of Land Management's multiple use and sustained yield mission, ensuring the health, diversity, and productivity of public lands for the use and enjoyment of present and future generations. By putting conservation on an equal footing with other uses, the proposal would help guide responsible development while safeguarding important places for the millions of people who visit public lands every year to hike, hunt, camp, fish, and more. The proposal comes at a pivotal moment as our public lands face new and growing challenges. Climate change is driving unprecedented drought and increasingly intense fires, a loss of wildlife, and an influx of invasive species. At the same time, public lands face growing pressures as recreation increases and development on private land disrupts habitat. This proposal would ensure the BLM is able to respond to these pressures, managing for healthy lands today so it can deliver its multiple use mission now and into the future. So what does this rule do? So it's going to focus on the promotion. It's going to focus on promoting the restoration of lands and waters on BLM lands. The proposal would broaden the use of the land health standards beyond the BLM's grazing program and would try to provide some more land management using land health assessments and build conservation decisions into these land management processes. Um, a big part of this proposal would be to conserve the best and intact healthy landscapes. So it would call on the BLM to 
maintain intact lands to help support wildlife and migration corridors and overall ecosystem function. So overall, this would bring conservation into the land management planning process because conservation really hasn't been a part of the BLM's mission before, and it's mostly been focused on resource extraction and recreation. And the bill does not change the BLM's multiple use mission. So as with anything with public lands, this bill has gotten a lot of people fired up in both camps, people who are really excited to see that conservation is being put on even footing with some of these resource extraction and land degrading practices, while others are really opposed to this new rule because they worry that development and the previous uses of these lands may be restricted. Public comment closed on July 5th. And Solon, what do you think the trend of the public comments will be? Do you think most people are going to be in favor of this rule or do you think most people are going to be against this rule? I think largely the people are going to be in favor of this rule. However, I think that there's going to be a handful of people that have lots of financial incentive and a lot of say that are not in favor of the rule. So I think that there's a majority of the actual population is in favor, but there's a couple of big parties that are maybe against the rule. So the Center for Western Priorities performed a sentiment analysis on a random sample of 10,000 public comments of the 216,000 comments that the BLM received over the last three months. And Center for Western Priorities analysis found that 92% of the comments encouraged the rule and that most comments wanted the rule to be adopted as proposed or would like to see the BLM strengthen the conservation measures proposed in the rule. So now the next steps are for the BLM to review and use the public comments during the rulemaking process so that they can either revise, clarify, or improve the proposed rule. And then the revised rule will then be reviewed by the White House Office of Management and Budget before being finalized and published in the Federal Register. This process will probably take up to a year to complete. But as of yet, it looks like this rule is at least going to be adopted, and it'll be interesting to see Uh, whether some of the suggestions, and you can go, or I don't know if you can still, but at at least up until July 5th, you were able to go through and read some of the public comments, which I did. Most of the ones that I saw were requesting stronger language in the rule and more specific conservation measures and management strategies to be included in the rule before it gets finalized. So it'll be interesting to see how it changes over the next year and what this will really mean for the BLM. Yeah, overall, I think that this is a great plan. I just want to make sure, you know, that since it's something that's going to be in place for a long time, I think that it's important that they look at, you know, forward thinking conservation measures that are also going to be, you know, of the equivalent need that we'll need in the future, because we might need more conservation in the future. So I just hope that they're looking that far ahead. I hope they're also coming up with a good metric to establish what is important land to conserve, um, something that's measurable in a way to make sure that we can have some real guidelines on what is going to be good land to conserve. So that way there's not as many biases if something comes up for development. And, you know, hopefully there's not any type of financial incentive to conserve one land or the other, and that it's based on the data of what's going to be more beneficial for the wildlife and the ecosystem of that area. As always, we keep our fingers crossed to have our policies be driven by data. 
Yeah. Which uh, brings us to our last two stories that we want to cover. At least I know the one that I'm going to touch on at the end maybe is an example of where policy lacks some data-driven decision-making. But Asolan, before we get there, do you want to jump into your final news story? Yeah. So mine also has to do with some data. And it's interesting because the data is going to exceed our positive standards on one end, and then it might fall short in others. So we'll let's tackle this. And I'm just going to touch base on this topic because it's a very loaded topic that we could have a whole nother podcast on because it's going to be about wolves and the Endangered Species Act. And as we know, haven't you heard that the three things you're not supposed to talk about are religion, politics and wolves? I've I've definitely heard that. Oh, man. Well, we're already ruining that rule with Um, this episode by hitting two of the three. But, you know, I understand that we have a very eclectic country, so this is very nuanced in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I think there's certain things that are lacking. Again, I'm just going to touch on this a little bit so that way we don't do multiple episodes on it. So on April 28th, (laughs) yeah, yeah. On April 28th, 2023, a House bill to delist gray wolves, Canis Lupus, passed the House Committee on Natural Resources by a 21 to 16 vote. Vote, not a boat. This bill is ironically called the Trust the Science and was put forth by Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado and Thomas Tiffany, congressman of Wisconsin. This bill requires the Secretary of the Department of the Interior to reinstate the delisting decision of 2020 that was decided under the Trump administration. So for a bit of history on this, and this is just kind of coming off of Boebert's press release that she did after the vote, So in 2009, Obama administration upheld the decision to delist gray wolves when the Interior Secretary Ken Salazar of Democrat of Colorado announced the decision at a press conference. He stated that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decision to delist gray wolves was a supportable one. Scientists have concluded that recovery has occurred. And again, there's lots of questions on this. This was pulled directly from Lauren Boebert's press release. In 2011, Congress directed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to reinstate a rule to delist gray wolves in the northern Rocky ecosystem. Then in 2013, the Obama administration proposed delisting gray wolves in the lower 48. And then in November 2020, the wolves were once again delisted under the Trump administration. In 2020, after they were delisted, There was a unilateral overturn by the senior district judge, Jeffrey White. So the U.S. district judge, Jeffrey White, in Oakland, California, said the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had failed to show wolf populations could be sustained in the Midwest and portions of the West without protection under the Endangered Species Act. The service also didn't adequately consider the threats to wolves outside of those core areas. This only covered 44 states during the reinstatement and did not include Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, or New Mexico. So in all the other 44 states, the wolves are protected. And New Mexico still acknowledged the ESA coverage. And they're also primarily concerned with the Mexican wolf, um, which that is under a separate protection. So the Mexican wolf is not in any danger of being delisted during this bill. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was planning on studying the relisting of gray wolves, but Lauren Boebert also called on them to reverse this decision and instead um, to look into putting $1 million towards the wolf livestock loss demonstration program. 
And wolves have really been on the brink of being delisted for a long time now. But the scary thing about this time, this bill makes it so the delisting decision cannot be put forth in front of a judge again. So like last time, it was the California judge, Jeffrey White. He made that unilateral decision, which basically almost kind of like an executive decision to make it so that way the wolves were just continuously listed in all these other states. Um, But again, he wasn't able to make it listed in Montana, Wyoming, and New Mexico, and Idaho. But that won't be able to happen again once this bill is enacted. And there's still some time. It passed the House committee. So it's passed the House. Does it still need to go to the Senate? I don't think so. So from what I read, it only needs to be passed by the, let's see, what was it? The Secretary of the Department of the Interior. Exactly. So it just needs to be passed by the Secretary of the Department of the Interior. It doesn't seem like it needs to pass the Senate or anything like that. So it's almost to being passed. So this is definitely concerning. And one thing that I noticed when looking this stuff up, it's actually kind of hard to find where this bill's at, whether wolves are currently protected or not protected, because there's just so much misinformation out there on wolves and where things are from all these different stakeholders that could be affected by these rules. To give you an idea of who's backing this bill, it's going to be the National Rifle Association, the Safari Club International, Sportsmen for Fish and Wildlife, Wisconsin's Cattlemen Association, and the Wisconsin's Farm Bureau Federation are among the groups that support the Trust the Science Act. These are not conservationists supporting the bill, and they're not scientists supporting the bill. It's primarily people that are into it for a for-profit reason, you know, whether it's hunting or cattle. And I do think it's important to note one thing that was put out by the Center for Biological Diversity is that they never really had a recovery program set up for the gray wolves, except for what they referred to as the eastern timber wolf. So they're they being the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Or? Yes, they they being the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They never had a re- recovery program for all the gray wolves. Gray wolves, they have met their metric. If you were to just consider the small portion of Wisconsin and Minnesota that they wanted to reestablish their population, but they haven't adapted to any of their native range yet. They're a very small percentage of what was their original range. And especially at West, their populations have never really bounced back. You know, I mean, Wyoming, they still only have like 350 wolves. So a lot of places, they didn't really have a metric to meet. So I think that overall, we can't just enact this and give this back to the states to decide whether or not they should be protected. And yeah, again, I don't want to get too heavy into this because I could go on about wolves for a long time. And as they say, don't talk about religion, politics, or wolves, but we're kind of doing, I don't know, at least two out of three here. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what we're here for. So what science is the bill pulling from if they're calling themselves the trust the science bill? So I think what they're pulling from is the recovery plan that was focused on the Eastern Timber Wolf, which basically focused on getting the populations established in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. And I think they said that they wanted there to be like 650 permanent residents, wolf residents, and between like the northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin area. And now there's about like 2,000 or 3,000 wolves in that area. So I think oh, wow. that's that's what they're pulling from because they are they are doing pretty well in the Minnesota, Wisconsin area. But again, there hasn't really been any consideration for the West either. So, you know, from what I could tell and from what I read from the Center for Biological Diversity is that their recovery plan just focused on the Eastern Timber Wolf, which is essentially a 
another way of saying the eastern gray wolf which is again just just the gray wolf just kind of like a subset not even really a subspecies mm-hmm. so i think that that is the data that they're pulling from um, especially since timothy tiffany of uh, a congressman in wisconsin you know and then lauren bobert probably has some initiative for it because they're actually going to be releasing wolves in Colorado soon um, because that was recently voted on back in 2022 I believe to start an introduction program in Colorado so this will make it a lot easier for her to appease those that are against bringing wolves back into Colorado because they'll at least it's hard to say how regulated it will be, but there's a good chance we'll be able to hunt them again. And at least their listing is going to be up to the state and not to the federal agencies. I just find it so wild that the conservation status, so meaning whether something is threatened, endangered, species of concern, that a species conservation status can be decided through legislation, not through a decision based on species numbers, looking across a variety of different populations and subgroups of the species. I mean, if you think about on an international level, like like the IUCN that manages the red list, like they have panels and big boards to determine the listing or delisting or reclassification of a species conservation status. And it just blows my mind that all of this can be thrown out the window and that it's left not only up to the federal government, but also to individual state governments to determine the conservation status of a species. Yeah. And also to be clear, like back in 2020, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service basically said they agreed with the numbers. Um, But it seems like they were kind of pushed by certain politicians to come to that conclusion. Again, because there wasn't an original metric saying that they need to meet these numbers. They they have met these numbers in some areas, but not in their entire native range. Um, So they're kind of just jumping back into this, this weird management strategy left of the states where, I mean, I'm sure a state after this, they could decide they don't want wolves at all. You know, they want their management numbers super low, you know, and I hope that they don't do that. But it's tough to say where this is going to go at this point. And it is interesting, too, that some other countries that are a lot smaller than us have almost the equivalent wolf numbers. Like if you think about Italy's got like 5,500 wolves, I believe, and around that number, at least. And the United States has about 6,000 wolves. Um, wow. And that's that's in the contiguous United States. That's so not including Alaska. But either way, though, I mean, like we're such a huge area compared to Italy and they are doing relatively OK in some other ranges. But I think really it's the extent of the range that has not been considered in this. Funnily enough, this reminds me about some of the discussions around tiger conservation and tiger Mm -hmm. population numbers. And by the time this episode comes out, we will have already celebrated Global Tiger Day. And I'll talk about that in more detail then. But it just reminds me of the T by two plan that I discussed in our Tiger Day mini episode and how some countries reached or even exceeded their goal of doubling tiger populations by 2022, while others fell short. I guess to draw a parallel, it would be like saying that T by two initiative was fully successful because countries like Nepal were able to more than double their population size and be able to say that the the whole program was successful, whereas 
I mean, that that's not where we stand with tigers. It is interesting, you know, like wolves are successful in some areas and it is really amazing how well they recovered in lots of areas um, due to the Endangered Species Act. But it's just concerning what's going to happen once they're off of it. Luckily, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is required to monitor them for five years to make sure that they are going to be able to sustain their population. And they could be relisted again through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service findings, potentially. So at least there's that. But again, I just think we need to be taking into the extent of their range. You know, instead of looking at the whole United States, we are, you know, the contiguous United States, again, not including Alaska, obviously not Hawaii, no wolves there. (laughs) But we can't just look at these little pockets and say they're okay, they're doing all right there, especially because wolves have such a large range to travel. And they really need to be able to travel with their packs or to go find another pack for an individual wolf. And they need to be able to travel these long distances without being harmed. Yeah, to me, this seems like less of like a total doomsday situation, like wolves are going to be delisted forever and we're going to see them be hunted to the brink of extinction. And this more seems like something that's going to ebb and flow with administrations and like political climate, because like you said, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has to keep monitoring the wolves and it seems like it's going to be one of those dances where one year they're listed and then three years later they're delisted and then they're relisted again and hopefully if that is the future that it at least maintains a somewhat sustainable population number yeah i hope so too it's it's really tough to say and again it's a super loaded topic um well larry you want to talk about some other policy changes Um, particularly in Utah. Yeah, I'm going to be discussing another contentious piece of wildlife legislation that recently came out of Utah because this affects another major predator species, mountain lions. And before we get into the bill itself, I think it's important to learn a little bit about mountain lions and its population in Utah. And when we're talking about mountain lions, you can also call them cougars or pumas interchangeably. And I'll probably change up what name I'm calling it based on the mood I'm in or what source I'm pulling from. You have a preference? Um, It kind of depends on who I'm talking to. I think I grew up always calling them mountain lions. But then when I started working in wildlife, I called them cougars because it seems like that's what state wildlife management usually calls them. And then I feel like puma is really only referred to in, uh, I don't know, I call them. Yeah, I'll I'll call them pumas when I'm referring to the ones in South America. But they are all puma concolor and they are all the same species but they just have a lot of nicknames. Some fun facts about cougars, because we are above anything else, a wildlife podcast. So cougars are the world's fourth largest wildcat after lions, tigers, and jaguars. Their bodies are mainly covered in tawny beige fur, except with the whitish gray belly and chest. And they also have black markings that decorate the tips of their tail, ears, and around the snout. Mountain lions vary hugely in average body size, depending on their geographic location. Their size is smallest, closer to the equator, and largest, closer to the poles. Generally, though, males weigh between 115 to 220 pounds, which is 52 to 100 kilograms, and females weigh between 64 to 141 pounds, or 29 to 64 kilograms. The mountain lion's range spreads all across North and South America from the Canadian Yukon to the Strait of Magellan and has the greatest range of any living mammal in the Americas. 
On the IUCN red list, they are a species of least concern, and typically they prey on deer, but also feed on smaller animals, even insects when necessary. And like all cats, mountain lions are strict carnivores, and they rarely consume vegetation. Female mountain lions usually give birth every two years. Litters can range in size from one to six cubs. Young may stay with their mothers for as long as 26 months, but usually they separate after 15 months. And in the wild, a mountain lion can live up to 10 years. Mountain lions are considered an umbrella species. And an umbrella species is often either a flagship species whose conservation benefits other species. And it's important to note that being an umbrella species is different from being a keystone species because keystone species are species that have a disproportionate impact on the ecosystem around them compared to their population. But because mountain lions are an umbrella species, it means that when you protect mountain lions, you protect large areas of habitat and all of the other species that live within it. Oh, so for reference, wolves are a keystone species and then mountain lions are an umbrella species. Yep, exactly. Just to throw so, that in there. Yeah, so the, the common example for wolves is the importance of wolves in the Yellowstone ecosystem and how when you remove the wolf, you see huge ecosystem collapses. So mountain lions usually require about 13 times as much area as a black bear or 40 times as much area as a bobcat. So by preserving enough wilderness to support a stable mountain lion population, countless other species of plants and animals that share this habitat are also benefited. I have to say, I find mountain lions really, really interesting because they live in such a variety of different habitats. And I've especially enjoyed watching and learning about the pumas in South America and in the Patagonian region. There's some amazing BBC documentaries out there that document their behavior, which is really different from what we see in our North American lions. We see that they tend to be a bit more social and live in groups, and it's almost a little bit more akin to the social structure to African lions, definitely not as organized like that, but way more social than what we see in our mountain lions up in North America. So now that we've taken a look at mountain lions in general, let's look at the mountain lions in Utah, since the bill that just had a big change is coming from this state. The state of Utah has developed a cougar management plan from 2015 to 2025, and a lot of this information that I'm going to share now is coming from that management plan. According to the plan, Utah cougars occupy 92,696 square kilometers. Uh, that's about 35,790 square miles of habitat. And cougars are distributed throughout all available ecoregions. In 1999, a statewide population estimate was conducted with an estimated 2,500 to nearly 4,000 cougars estimated by one method, and then a second estimate of about 2,900 using a different method. And according to more recent estimates, Utah's cougar population is currently somewhere around 1,600 animals and declining. So if these populations are correct, in the last 24 years, the mountain lion population in Utah has decreased by over 50%. Historically, cougars have been persecuted in Utah as vermin from the time of European settlement from 1847 until 1966, because in 1967, the Utah State Legislature changed the status of cougars to that of protected wildlife. 
And since that time, they've been considered a game species with very strict and established hunting regulations and permits. Mule deer are known to be the preferred prey species of cougars. And in Utah, both deer and elk have been identified as primary prey species as well. And because deer and elk are game species and hunting is very popular in Utah, cougars are pretty big targets in Utah. I have to point out that most research indicates that cougars and predation alone are not major limiting factors of prey species abundance, and that the main factors that do decrease elk and deer populations are habitat quality and winter severity. I think this is a really important piece of information because predation by mountain lions is often used as a valid argument to decreasing mountain lion populations. And despite the fact that the scientific evidence points to other factors besides predation by mountain lions as being a major influence on deer and elk populations, most predator management plans that affect cougars have been designed to benefit mule deer and or bighorn sheep in Utah and not the cougars themselves. So that's kind of the natural history on cougars and how their management is often dealt with in states, especially like Utah. And so what's currently going on is in May of 2023, Utah's Governor Cox signed a bill to allow year-long mountain lion hunting. So the bill in question is HB 469, if you're interested in reading it in more detail, But to summarize, it essentially took away the management of cougars from the Division of Wildlife Resources, which is the state wildlife agency, by removing the need for a separate license to hunt cougars. Now hunters and trappers can hunt cougars any time of year with a regular hunting license. I just want to let that sink in. Hunting of mountain lions is now permitted year round with a regular hunting license. This means there's no regulations on hunting based on breeding times age, or sex. So obviously this has upset mountain lion and wildlife advocacy groups like Utah Mountain Lion Conservation and the Mountain Lion Foundation, but you might be surprised that hunters, sportsmen, and houndsmen have also joined together with wildlife biologists and the conservation groups I just mentioned to oppose the bill. I heard some press coverage by KZMU, which is a local radio station in Moab, Utah, that interviewed a longtime mountain lion hunter who was upset by the bill. He commented on the low number of mountain lions in the area where he hunts and shared his concerns about how this bill may affect the already low numbers. He also pointed out that the lack of hunting restrictions might make it easier for people to hunt other species like bear under the guise of hunting mountain lions, because there will be no way to prove that someone who doesn't have the animal is intending to hunt mountain lion and not some other species. I've personally had a few conversations with one of the directors of one of these conservation groups involved in the discussions to oppose the bill. And I was told that these groups are putting together a proposal for the next legislative session. So hopefully changes to the bill will be made soon. And we're definitely going to be following the progression of this bill as it's one of the most major pieces of legislation that affects such an important and charismatic species like the mountain lion other than this legislation that Solon just talked about concerning wolves. So another organization that spoke out against the bill is the Humane Society, which is interesting because they rarely speak out with wildlife issues. But in their public statement, they brought up a really good point that not having seasonal or sex restrictions may result in females with cubs being hunted, leaving their cubs to starve. 
when I first heard about this bill, I didn't even think about this aspect of it. And so I'm really glad that they made a public statement about this. So you might be wondering if so many groups from so many different ends of the spectrum, like hunting groups to anti-hunting conservation groups, oppose the bill. Why did it get passed in the first place? It turns out that originally HB 469 began as a very favorable wildlife bill regulating unfair hunting and trapping methods, like addressing the use of camera traps for hunting purposes. And the bill as it stands now states that a trail camera using internal data storage and not capable of transmitting data is permitted on the use of private lands for the purposes of taking protected wildlife, but that a trail camera may not be used to take wildlife on public land during the period beginning on July 31st and ending on December 31st. It also talked about who is allowed to use trail cameras between that restricted time period of July 31st to December 31st, including the Division of Wildlife Resources, NGOs, educational groups, and other persons who are involved in specific monitoring operations. And that if you do not qualify, that trail camera use on public lands from July 31st to December 31st is not allowed. Another really great thing that this bill did was it created and allocated $1 million to the Wildlife Land and Water Acquisition Program under which the division may lease or acquire land or water assets that either protect and enhance wildlife populations, provide the public the opportunity to hunt, trap, or fish, and conserve, protect, and enhance wildlife habitat. This was the main part of the bill that made it so attractive in the first place and was the main reason that it was passed. It's just so interesting how there are often times where you're going to get a more progressive wildlife protection bill put into place and then something gets slipped in there before it goes out that ends up being negative and harmful to the wildlife. It's so bizarre how this happened because pretty much last minute lawmakers added this amendment which eliminated any season regulation for cougar hunting. And there was no public input for this amendment. Yeah. And, and because of this, this means that this bill completely undermines the division of wildlife resources and their work in data-driven wildlife management, and also the management plan that they have created specifically for cougars from 2015 to 2025. You can probably tell that I'm pretty interested in this little piece of legislation. And previously, I've not read too many legal documents. But when I read this bill, I was so surprised at how simple the changes that pertain to cougars were. So for example, when listing take permits like big game, bear, turkey, and muskrat, which all need their own separate permit, they just crossed out cougar in that list. And then in the combination hunting license section, they just added cougar to the list along with small game and fish. What this does is it makes it just as easy to obtain a permit to kill a cougar as it is to fish in Utah because they are now under the same hunting license. It's just wild because it's literally just like looking at a red line version of like editing like someone's paper where... They just yeah. went through and crossed out like the part that they didn't like. It's amazing how just a tiny little change in wording changes so much. Oh, and by the way, they also changed the listing in the non-resident hunting license section, which means that people from wherever can now come to hunt lions at any time of year because just like non-residents can get a fishing license or a small game hunting license, they can now get that license and kill mountain lions. 
I think that that's especially upsetting because hunting has just really become like in a lot of areas like this capitalistic venture where it's just people with money and they spend tons of money on their hunting excursions to go to Utah or Wyoming or Montana. And it really takes away the connection that hunters previously had with the land. So I think it's kind of a disservice to local hunters to allow stuff like that to go through. Well, and I think that's why the local hunting groups and the Houndsmen Association are really opposed to this bill, actually, because they they do have such a value and a culture for this species. And I think they're really worried about that. Yeah. Yeah, I I would be, too. You know, and I think same goes for wolves, you know, where like there's a lot of people that live in certain areas that they appreciate the species, but then you have these outside companies are, you know, a lot of ranch land is owned by giant organizations, whether they're using it for a tax write-off or they're just using it just to own land as an investment. So you look at these people having this huge pull and these different legislations or bills that go out and the the people who actually live there, they're not really getting as much of a say in it. So it's those kind of things that can just be really upsetting sometimes. I suppose there's one silver lining, which is that according to the state of Utah, nearly all cougars harvested in Utah are taken with the aid of dogs. And as far as I know, you still require a bear permit for the use of dogs to hunt lions. There are definitely people who are very skilled and are able to hunt mountain lions without the use of dogs. But I think having this one stipulation where the use of dogs still need a bear permit probably lessens the immediate impact of what this bill might mean. Yeah, I think that and also the use of cameras is definitely beneficial for the mountain lions because You know, I think a lot of hunters nowadays are gradually beating, not all of them, obviously, but they're a certain group of hunters out there that are becoming more dependent on technologies like cameras or, you know, the old time use of dogs. So I think hunting mountain lions without that could be incredibly difficult, but, you know, we'll, we'll see, I guess, after, after this has been in effect for a while. All that being said, cougars are still a protected big game species even though you don't require a separate big game permit now. And hunters are still required to turn in lions to the Utah Department of Wildlife Resources as usual. They still need to obtain their general hunting license and night hunting is still prohibited. And mountain lion trapping is also still prohibited. And the department's going to seek public comment on how to approach lion regulations and the new legislation this year. So this is definitely not the end of this bill. This is definitely not the end of mountain lion hunting policy in Utah. And again, this is going to be one of those things that we're going to keep a close eye on because other than wolves, like we don't see this kind of legislation about predator species very often. Yeah, there might be some more stuff coming out about grizzly bears too, if I recall correctly. Oh, that's right. There were some um, updates in February uh, and and some more things we need to take a look into there as well. We'll we'll get there. There's a lot to cover. Yeah, (laughs) we're just getting started. But for today's episode, that's all we have for you. So thank you so much for listening. In our next episode, we're going to be providing you with some updates on avian flu and just talking about that since That was a big hot topic last year, and I feel like some of the news buzz has died down around it, but it has definitely not gone away. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. 
Thank you for listening to Keep Them Wild. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. If you have suggestions on stories, topics, or other content, please email us at adventurersforanimals at gmail.com.